What we're going to hear tonight <coughs> is a great uh, writer and a storyteller. Uh, Paul has written seven books, nonfiction, fiction, and uh, he's told great stories throughout uh, Chautauqua County in western New York. Please welcome Paul Leone. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank Good to you. see you. Dennis, Good to see you. Good to be here. Um, so you've written four nonfiction or four fiction? Three fiction, four nonfiction. Okay. And uh, one of your, well, I don't know if it's fiction or nonfiction. You had a really cool book a few years ago, uh, Ghosts of Chautauqua. Chautauqua Ghosts. Chautauqua Ghosts. Yep. That's right. And a lot of people think that this theater is haunted. They do. And what, I, what you find, if you read Paul's book, before this was the Reg, or before it was the Palace, the same spot held the Allen Opera House. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Mr. Allen opened the Opera House in the sort of second half of the 19th century. It was very successful. And um, in the 1870s, I believe it is, I, if I remember right, there was a Shakespearean group from England that came to do a single night at the Allen Opera House. They were, they were, uh, they did, uh, uh, they did make a bath, but uh, I, in my Chautauqua Ghosts book, I sort of changed it to Hamlet. The reason being, the plot of the story. So it takes off from the the play Hamlet. In Hamlet, the ghost appears twice. Once in the very beginning, and once later on in the famous bedroom scene. Those of you who know Hamlet. So for the plot of this story, what I had to do, what I needed to do was to have somebody die, in the, one of the players die in the time that the, uh, between the two ghosts' appearance. And then the player, in order to finish the play, returns and finishes the play, and nobody's the wiser that it's a ghost. So. so. That's that. From the Allen Opera House. Yeah, yeah. From the Allen Opera House to the Reglin A Center for the Arts and WRFA. Again, welcome again, Mr. Paul Leone. Thank you so much. You know, I, I apologize for being here, you know, right when you're all here. I thought we were doing this at 7 o'clock. I have the feeling that um, Edgar was the same way, a little absent-minded like that. The skies, they were ashen and sober. The leaves, they were crisped and sear. The leaves, they were withering and sear. It was night in the lonesome October of my most immemorial year. It was down by the dim lake of Auburn in the misty mid-region of Weir. It was hard by the dank tarn of Arbor in the ghoul-haunted woodland of Weir. 
Here once, through an alley, Titanic. I roamed with Psyche, my soul, through Cyprus with Psyche, my soul. These were days when my heart was volcanic, as the scoriac rivers that roll, as the lavas that restlessly roll, their sulfurous currents down Yannick in the ultimate climb of the pole, that groan as they roll down Mount Yannick in the realms of the Boreal Pole. Our talk had been serious and sober, but our thoughts, they were palsied and seared. Our memories were treacherous and seared, for we knew not the month was October, and we marked not the night of the year, or oh, night of all nights of the year. We noted not the dim lake of Arbor, though once we had journeyed down here, remembered not the dank tarn of Arbor, or the ghoul-haunted woodland of Weir. And now, as the night was senescent, and the star-dials pointed to morn, as the sun-dials hinted at morn, at the end of our path, a liquescent and nebulous luster was born, out of which a miraculous crescent arose with its duplicate horn, Astarte's betimended crescent, distinct with its luminous horn. And I said, she is warmer than Diane. She floats on a river of sighs. She revels in a region of sighs. She has seen that the tears are not dry on these cheeks, where the worm never dies, and has come through the stars of the lion to show us the path to the skies, to the lethean peace of the skies. Come up through the stars of the lion, with love in her luminous eyes. But Psyche, upraising her finger, said, Sadly, this star I mistrust. Its pallor I strangely mistrust. Oh, hasten! Oh, let us not linger! Oh, fly! Let us fly, for we must! In terror she spoke, letting sink her wings till they trailed in the dust. In agony sobbed, letting sink her plumes till they trailed in the dust. I replied, this is nothing but dreaming. Let us on by this tremulous light. Let us bathe in this crystalline light. Its sibilant splendor is beaming with hope and in beauty tonight. See, it trickles up the sky to the night. We safely can trust to its gleaming and be sure it will lead us aright.
we safely can trust to a gleaming that cannot but guide us aright, since it trickles up the heaven through the night. Thus I pacified Psyche and kissed her, and conquered her out of her gloom, and we passed to the end of a vista, but were stopped by the door of a tomb, by the door of a legended tomb. And I said, what is written, dear sister, on the door of this legended tomb? She replied, Ulalum, Ulalum, tis the vault of thy lost Ulalum. Then my heart it grew ashen and sober, as the leaves that were crisped and sere, as the leaves that were withering and sere. And I cried, it was surely October, on this very night of last year, that I journeyed, I journeyed down here, that I brought a dread burden down here. O oh, night of all nights of the year, what demon has tempted me here? Well, I know now this dim lake of Arbor, this misty re region of Weir, well, I know now this dank tarn of Arbor, this moon-haunted woodland of Weir. That's Ula Loom, written in 1947, the year that Edgar Poe's wife died at the age of 25 from tuberculosis. She was his first cousin and his child bride, whom he married when she was 13, which might sound a little freaky to you, but there's a, there's a lot of story behind that. And a couple of uh, notes. Um, you will hear in a lot of Poe's poetry references to sky beings, like Astarte in this poem. Astarte is um, a goddess, um, sort of, um, um, a, an alter ego of Ishtar, if you've heard of Ishtar, and um, so and she is always represented with horns. So that's Astarte. Um, Edgar Poe had, um, when he was a young man, he had a telescope, and so he was, uh, you know, he was watching the skies, and you will find uh, references to um, to to sky constellations and the stars uh, in many of the poems, and particularly in this one, um, this next one. And I will try and um, give some context to the, you know, the, 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 the constellations afterwards. <clears throat> this poem is called Israfel, and Israfel in the Koran is the heavenly being with the most beautiful voice. <clears throat> In heaven a being doth dwell, whose, 
whose heartstrings are a lute. None sing so wildly well as the angel Israfel. And the giddy stars, so heavens tell, ceasing their hymns, attend the spell of his voice, all mute, tottering above in her highest noon. The enamored moon blushes with love, wild to listen, the red leaven with the happy Pleiades, even which were seven, pauses in heaven. And they say, the starry sky and the other listening things, that is Raffelli's fire is owing to that lyre by which he sits and sings, the trembling living wire of those unusual strings. But the skies the angels trod, where deep thoughts are a duty, where love's a grown-up God, where the oary glances are imbued with all the beauty which we worship in a star. Therefore thou art not wrong, Israfeli, who despisest an unimpassioned song. To thee the laurels belong, best bard because the wisest, merrily live and long. The ecstasies above with thy burning measures suit thy grief, thy joy, thy hate, thy love, with the fervor of thy lute. Well may the stars be mute. Yes, heaven is thine, but this is a world of sweets and sorrows. Our flowers are merely flowers, and the shadow of thy perfect bliss is the sunshine of ours. If I could dwell where Israfel hath dwelt, and he where I, he might not sing so wildly well a mortal melody, while a bolder note than this might swell from my lyre beneath the sky. <laughs> so you heard in there the Pleiades, the Red Leaven. I'm not exactly sure what that is. You can Google it. I haven't done that. What are they? The, the Red Leaven? Yeah. Anybody know what the Red Leaven is? No. Google it. And then there's the Uri, too. H-O-U-R-I with a capital H. All right. Um, so Poe was the first, I believe, po American poet to actually construct a theory of poetry. And um, a, a good part of that theory was that a poem 
should not exceed X number of lines. It should be short because one cannot hold an elevated sense of um, sort of breathlessness, ecstasy for a long poem. So a lot of his poems are very short. And uh, the next two are short poems. This is one of my favorite vocabulary word first. Um, you'll hear in this poem, it's the second word of the poem, the word bedight, which is uh, a, a, an old English form, actually, with that B-E in the front of a word is sort of equivalent to R-E-D at the end of a word. It means past tense. Um, and dight is a word meaning clothed. So read your Chaucer and you will see that form all over. This poem is called El Dorado. Gaily be dight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and in shower, had journeyed long, singing a song in search of El Dorado. But he grew old, this knight so bold, and o'er his heart a shadow fell, as he found no spot of ground that looked like El Dorado. And as his strength left him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow, ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. That's a great poem. Um, now, this next poem is one that Poe wrote when he was, I believe, 16 years old. And it's called To Helen. It's a very famous poem poem, short poem of Poe's. Um, Helen was the mother. This poem is dedicated to the mother of a boyhood friend of Poe's. And once you hear this poem, you will see that Poe was sort of never out of this woman's affection afterwards. <clears throat> Helen, thy beauty is to me like those Nicene barks of yore that ever o'er a perfumed sea the weary, wayworn wanderer bore to his own native shore. On desperate seas, long wont to roam, thy hyacinth hair, thy classic face, Thy naiad airs have brought me home to the glory that was Greece, to the grandeur that was Rome. 
Low in yon brilliant window niche, how statue-like I see thee stand. The agate lamp within thy hand. Ah, Psyche, from the regions which are holy land. I can't make that poem scan right, but <clears throat> All right. Um, <clears throat> I study a lot of French literature in my life, and uh, a really wonderful French 19th century poet was Charles Baudelaire. Some of you may know his poetry, famous for the volume Fleur du Mal, Flowers of Evil. Baudelaire was a big fan of Poe's. I uh, translated a lot of Poe's poetry, and the flowers of evil were are poems that um, have beautiful sound and rhythm, uh, and but the themes and content of the poem are usually fairly dark. And so this poem called um, "The City in the Sea," I believe, probably was one that uh, Baudelaire was thinking about when. Um, in the same way that uh, it, it has the same sort of um, beauty to it, but in a dark way. Let me mention this word low, because you find this word low, L-O, usually followed by an exclamation point, which is sort of, and it starts often starts at the beginning of a poem, um, <clears throat> where it says, all right, be alert. It says, okay, now. Or it's just sort of an exclamation to, to get you ready. <clears throat> Lo, death has built himself a throne in a strange city, lying alone, far down within the dim west, where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. There no rays from the holy heavens come down on the long night time of that town, but light from out the lurid sea streams up the turrets silently, gleams up the pinnacles far and free, up domes, up spires, up kingly halls, up fanes, up Babylon-like walls, up shadowy, long-forgotten bowers of sculptured ivy and stone flowers, up many and many a flowery shrine whose wreathed friezes intertwine the viol, the violet, and the vine. Refinedly beneath the sky, the melancholy waters lie. So blend the turrets and shadows there that all seem pendulous in air, while from a proud tower in the town, 
death looks gigantically down. There open fanes and gaping graves yawn level with the luminous waves, but not the riches bear that lie in each idol's diamond eye, not the gaily jeweled dead tempt the waters from their bed, for no ripples curl, alas, along that wilderness of glass, no swellings tell that waves might be upon some far-off happier sea, no heaving scent that waves have been on seas less hideously serene. But lo, a stir is in the air, the wave, there is a movement there, as if the towers had thrust aside in slightly sinking the dull tide, as if their tops had briefly given a void within the filmy heaven. The waves have now a redder glow. The hours are breathing, faint and low, and when, amid no earthly moan, down, down that town shall settle hence, hell, rising from a thousand thrones, will do it reverence. Dark. Okay, one of the most famous and well-loved of Poe's poems is The Bells. <laughs> um, all right, I want to see if I can do this. <clears throat> Hear the sledges with the bells, silver bells. What a world of merriment their melody foretells, how they tinkle, tinkle, tinkle in the icy air of night, while the stars that oversprinkle all the heavens seem to twinkle with a crystalline delight, keeping time, time, time in a sort of runic rhyme to the tintinabulation that so musically wells from the bells, 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 from the tinkling and the jingling of the bells. Hear the mellow wedding bells, golden bells. What a world of happiness their melody foretells through the balmy air of night. How they ring out their delight from the molten golden notes, and all in tune, what a liquid ditty floats to the turtle dove that listens as she gloats on the moon. Oh, from out the sounding 
cells. What a gush of euphony voluminously wells. How it swells. How it dwells on the future. How it tells of the rapture that impels to the swinging and the ringing of the bells, bells, bells. Of the bells, 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 to the rhyming and the chiming of the bells. Hear the loud alarm bells, brazen bells. What a tale of terror now their turbulency tells. In the startled ear of night, how they scream out their affright. Too much horrified to speak, they can only shriek, shriek, out of tune, in a clamorous appealing to the mercy of the fire, in a mad expostulation to the deaf and frantic fire, leaping higher, higher, higher with a desperate desire and a resolute endeavor now, now to sit or never by the side of the pale-faced moon. Oh, the bells, 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 what a tale their terror tells of despair, how they clang and clash and roar. What a horror they outpour on the bosom of the palpitating air. Yet the ear it fully knows by the twanging and the clanging how the danger ebbs and flows. Yet the ear distinctly tells by the twanging and the wrangling how the danger sinks and swells by the sinking or the swelling in the anger of the bells, of the bells, of the bells, 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 in the clamor and the clangor of the bells. Hear the tolling of the bells, iron bells, what a world of <clears throat> what a world of silent thought their monody compels in the silence of the night how we shiver with affright at the melancholy menace of their tone for every note that floats from the rust within their throats is a groan. And the people, ah, the people, they that dwell up in the steeple all alone, and who tolling, tolling, tolling in that muffled monotone Feel a glory in so rolling on the human heart a stone. They are neither man nor woman. They are neither brute nor human. They are ghouls, and their king it is who tolls. 
and he rolls, 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 rolls a paean from the bells, and his merry bosom swells with the paean from the bells, and he dances and he yells, keeping time, time, time in a sort of runic rhyme to the paean of the bells, keeping time, time, time in a sort of runic rhyme to the throbbing of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the sobbing of the bells, keeping time, 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 as he knells, 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 to the rolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the tolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the moaning and the groaning of the bells. <laughs> this next poem called Annabelle Lee is one that more than one young lady have said to me is their favorite poem in all the world. <clears throat> It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child. And she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love. I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs from heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea. A wind blew out of a cloud by night, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind blew out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my beautiful Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul 
of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise, but I see the bright eyes of my beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life, and my bride in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the side of the sea. So, you don't have to clap after each of the poems. <laughs> um, so Edgar is regularly stumbling around in the dark at the tomb of his dead beloved, both in the poems and in the prose stories as well. Um, all right. Do one with a bit of a different uh, sense to it, atmosphere to it. I think that uh, I have the feeling that this poem was maybe influenced by Shakespeare. This poem is called The Conqueror Worm, and it's pretty grotesque. <laughs> But Shakespeare, in many places, is remarking on the worm that eats the flesh of the king. So the king shouldn't be so high and mighty. <clears throat> Lo, tis a gala night amid the lonesome latter years. An angel throng, bewinged, be dight in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the, the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes, in the form of God on high, mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly. Mere puppets they who come and go at bidding of vast formless things who shift the scenery to and fro, flapping from out their condor wings invisible woe. That motley drama, oh, be sure, it shall not be forgot. With its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth into the self-same spot, and much of madness, and more of sin, and horror, the soul of the plot. But see, Amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic 
solitude, it rise, it rise with mortal pangs, the minds become its food, and the angels sob at vermin fangs with human gore imbued. Out, out, out all the lights, out all, and over each quivering foam the curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy, man, and the hero, the conqueror, worm. All right, I'm seeing by the clock that back there, but that, that it's almost 10 minutes to 7. And I was going to do this, um, of course I'm going to do The Raven, but um, I was going to do this story too. I don't know if we could go any, any longer than much beyond 7 o'clock. So might, we might have to forget that one for the night. It's just too bad. But, but all right, The Raven. <clears throat> I told Dennis it would be more than an hour, but I didn't know he was going to do that introduction thing here. Um, <clears throat> Once upon a midnight, dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, Suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember. It was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore. For oh, the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain, rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. Some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. 
presently my soul grew stronger. Hesitating then no longer, Sir, I said, or Madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into the darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, something louder than before. Surely, said I, surely this is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what their hat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore, tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute Stopped or stayed he, but with mane of lord or lady, perched upon my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebon bird beguiling, my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering on the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marveled, this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help believing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird upon his chamber door, 
bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such a name as Nevermore? But the raven, sitting lonely on that pallid bust, spoke only that one word, as if its soul in that one word it did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken, by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This and more I sat divining on the cushion's velvet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, but whose violet velvet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press ah nevermore. And methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God has lent thee. By these angels he hath sent thee respite, respite and nepenthe, from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh quaff this kind Nepenthe, and forget thy lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, cried I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or tempest tossed thee here ashore, Desolate, yet all unfounded, on this desert land enchanted, on this soul by horror haunted, tell me, truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, cry 
thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting. Bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting, get thee out into the tempest and the night's Plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit thy form above my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming floats his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow shall be lifted nevermore. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, I'm not sure what to do here now. I think I have to have Dennis give me permission if we're gonna do this other thing, or else you guys are ready? Um, all right, <laughs> we'll do it. So, you need to put yourself into the mind of an early 19th century institution for the criminally insane. say that I am mad. The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed them, not 
installed then above all the sense of hearing was acute I heard all things in the heavens and in the earth I heard many things in hell how then how then am I mad hearken and observe how carefully how calmly I can tell you the whole story it is impossible to say how the idea first entered my brain but once conceived it haunted day and night object there was none passion there was none I loved the old man he had never wronged me he had never given me insult for his gold I had no desire I think it was his eye yes it was this one of his eyes resembled that of a vulture a pale blue eye with a thin film over it whenever it fell upon me my blood ran cold and so by degrees very gradually I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever now this is the point you fancy me mad a madman knows nothing but you should have seen me you should have seen how I proceeded with what caution with what foresight with what dissimulation I went to work I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him and every night about midnight I turned the latch of his door and opened it oh so gently and when I had made an opening sufficient for my head I put in a dark lantern all closed so that no light shone out and then I thrust in my head I you would have laughed to see how carefully I thrust it in I moved it slowly very very slowly so 
so as not to disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to put my head so far into the room where I could see him where he lay upon the bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And when I had my head well in the room, I opened the lantern. I opened it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night. Just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. So it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me. It was his evil eye. And in the morning, I went boldly into his chamber, spoke to him courageously, calling him by name in a hearty tone, inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night I looked in upon him while he slept. On the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more swiftly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own power, my own sagacity. Who think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. It fairly made me chuckle, and perhaps he heard, for he turned suddenly on the bed as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. The room was as dark as pitch with the thick blackness. And so I knew he could not see the opening of the door. And I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped on the tin fastening. The old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. 
he was still sitting up in the bed, listening, hearkening, much as I have done night after night to the death watches in the wall. Pleasant, presently, I heard a slight groan. It was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, when all the world slept, it had welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him although I chuckled at heart. I knew he had been lying awake ever since that first slight noise when he had moved in the bed. His fears had been growing on him ever since. He had tried to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, it is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a little mouse crossing the floor. It is merely a cricket that has made one slight chirp. Ah, yes. He had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions. But he had found all in vain, all in vain. For death, in approaching, had stalked with its black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow which caused him to feel although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. And so I, I opened it. You cannot imagine how cautiously. I opened it just so much that a single dim ray 
shot from out the lantern and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I looked upon it. I could see it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or figure. For I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. Now, have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, much as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, such as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier courage. But even yet I refrained and stood still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meanwhile, the hellish tattoo of the, of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every instant. Have I not told you that I am nervous? So I am. And now, at that dreadful hour of the night, amid the awful silence of that whole house, such a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. For some minutes longer, I refrained and kept still, but the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to see the work, the work thus far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard by a neighbor. 
At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and left it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. The eye would trouble me no more. If you still think I'm mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then removed three planks from the flooring and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so carefully so cunningly that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain at all, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all, ha! When I had made an end to these labors, it was four o'clock still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three gentlemen who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and these men had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. At length, I led them into his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues. While I myself 
in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, set my own chair precisely upon the spot beneath which reposed the corpse. The gentlemen were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat. And while I answered cheerily, they chatted familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still the men chat, sat and still chatted. The, re the ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to try to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I discovered the sound was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale. But I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. But the sound increased. God, my God, what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath. And yet the officers heard it not. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations. But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the, the floor to and fro as if excited to fury by the observation of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed. I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it across the floor. The noise arose above all and steadily increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men smiled and chatted pleasantly. Was it possible they heard it not? Almighty God, no. They heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this duration. I could hold their... <coughs> I could take their hypocrisy no longer. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks, here, here. 
It is the beating of his villainous heart. That's it. 